Well, hello and welcome to episode 176 of the 1099 for the week of November 26, 2018. I'm your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is a research analyst at Wedbush Securities, the host of The Pactor Factor, and one of the biggest names in the business of games, making his third appearance, Michael Pactor. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm excited to be here. I'm uh, I'm on my third cup of coffee and ready to go on Saturday morning. Oh, third cup of coffee sounds... Did you at least have breakfast first, or is this just a full no, diet of coffee you know, in the morning? I, I'm every every year I look more and more like Santa Claus or John Goodman. <laughs> so no, I need to actually cut cut down on what I'm uh, eating. I I ate last night. I ate so much last night that I couldn't even. I had to roll into bed. So no, <laughs> nope. and I have a big dinner tonight. So I think I'm going to eat nothing all day. Well, this is a good mix then of like ate too much the night before, then had three cups of coffee kind of podcast. So anything can happen. Every time we talk, a whole bunch of random news articles come out quoting you and saying like, oh, Michael Pactor said this, Michael Pactor said that. So after three cups of coffee, we might get even more. That might be the goal at this point. Perfect. It was over a year ago since we last talked. So there's been just this medley of topics that I really want to dig into. And I want to start here because on our last show, you mentioned just going broad, the PS5 would come out sometime 2020, 2021. That's kind of where both of our heads were at and what made sense. And since then, we've seen Google jump into the fray with its streaming box, the concept of Netflix for games really starting to pick up steam and bubble up. Do you still think that we'll see next-gen consoles, discs and all, by 2020 or 2021? Or do you think that Mark has pushed? No, we will uh, almost certainly see next-gen consoles with discs. And... You know, Sony announced this week, uh, quietly announced, that they're not attending E3 2019. So it's pr- a pretty safe bet that there's no PS5 coming in 19. And I kind of think um, they pulled out because they have decided not to put a lot of money into current-gen new titles. And so they don't have a lot that we don't already know about. You know, we know about Days Gone. Um, you know, so that there'll be games coming for the next gen. I think that's going to be a 2020 announcement. And I think they intend to come back with splash. So 2020 new consoles. Um, when you mentioned the Google streaming box, you've seen rumors about Microsoft making two consoles and, you know, one supposedly streaming and one supposedly conventional. Um, I think the future is going to be an iTunes type model where you download the games to a box, like you downloaded iTunes to an iPod Mm. and not necessarily that there won't be a box at all. I mean, we can stream and you can certainly get a game on your phone and they can, you know, use the cloud to, to process the images and have a very powerful GPU. But the truth is they can give us, you know, Xbox 360 quality games, not Xbox one or PS4, uh, but Xbox 360 quality games by streaming or downloading to some other device. And that device is going to be <clears throat> Apple TV or Google HomePod or some type of a, you know, echo device. And I think that Microsoft's trying to keep up with that. So I think you're going to see a box from Microsoft that looks like that, you know, Facebook portal is one of those. Yeah. And I think there also will be a full blown console and think about it, you know, the way games are made for PC where there's a ton of games that are very casual that you don't need, you know, really high specs on your PC. And there's a handful of games that are super high definition, really, really well made. And you want the latest NVIDIA graphics card. And I think that they're going to position the boxes that way. So 
if you want the latest and greatest 4K, 240 frames a second, you're going to buy the next generation you know, PS5 or Xbox 2 or whatever they call it. And if you are willing to play a game that's, you know, old generation 1080p, 60 frames a second, they'll either stream it to you or will download it to a more simple device like an Apple TV. So I think you're going to see both. And then the open question is, you know, why have discs? Why not just download the 100 gigabyte, you know, 4K, 240 frame file? Uh, answer is that these boxes are going to be, you know, 400 bucks or so, and you need to buy them somewhere. And retailers are going to push back and say, if all we're getting out of this is a single sale and we're never going to have anything else, it's not so clear we want to carry them. Yeah. So I think that GameStop and Walmart and Target and Best Buy still matter to the to the console manufacturers. And I think as long as you have a well-developed trade-in business in the U.S., you'll have discs. Now, maybe you'll have a choice, a disc, disc-based disc and a disc-less console, but I think we're going to have discs. I think they're both coming in 2020. The uh, Xbox streaming device might come in 19, but I think you're going to get next-generation consoles kind of in that, that time frame. It's amazing how far we've come since 2013. When you think back to that E3 where Microsoft is coming out with, oh, you can't you know, use used games, everything is going to be cloud and streaming and everything like that. And now I do think there's always this certain demand, like you mentioned, not just by retailers, but I grew up in the most rural of rural areas, dirt roads, farms, and everything like that, where you just can't stream games and you can barely stream Netflix and you want that disc, right? You want that physical thing that maybe updates are going to be hard to get, but you can still play the core game without this really fast connection. But it feels like every publisher I've talked to, everyone I've talked to is still very hardcore on this idea that there's going to be a Netflix for games and we need to adapt to that. There's going to be this single price where you're able to stream. Like you said, maybe it's just the 1080, 60 frames, not 4K craziness, but there's, there's going to be this library of games you can just give a single price to and then stream them that way. Do you, if there were that, so if there's this backlog of you mentioned before 360, let's say they get to a point where we have next gen out in 2020 and there's a Netflix for games that just does the PS4 and Xbox One catalog where you can go and play some of the older Assassin's Creed, some of the older Call of Duty, and you're just streaming them on whatever device you have. What do you think that could be priced? Could you, could you think of Netflix? You think of like the monthly fee and it's really not that big. People share accounts with games and with publishers involved. Would you have to up that to 20 30 40 $50 a month? Um, I think that everybody talking about Netflix or games is just stupid. Sorry. <laughs> it's, um, ask yourself, you know, which came first, iTunes or Apple Music? Yeah. And, and what was the gap in time between the two? You know, the answer, 15 years. So, and why is that? Because Apple couldn't stream music in 2001? No, of course they could. Why didn't they? Because... Um, consumers would rather buy a song for 99 cents back then, you know, $1.29 now, and buy the songs they want to hear before they were willing to pony up 10 bucks a month and commit to a streaming service. And to be fair, uh, Rhapsody was, was launched in the 90s, I think 97 or 98. Um, it's, it's been renamed to Napster. They actually bought the Napster brand out of bankruptcy. Um, and Spotify came up in the mid 2000s, but didn't get big until the end of the decade. 
And even those guys, all of them combined, you know, Apple Music and, and Spotify, you know, how many consumers do they have? You know, 100 million? I mean, great. That's, that's a lot. How many people listen to music? A billion? More? Two? Yes. So the idea that we're going to launch Netflix first for games before we launch pay as you go, buy a game at a time is just idiotic. And I, I apologize because I'm also calling you an idiot. No, but you're fine. It just keeps getting repeated by everybody. And it starts with the publishers who are wrong. And so EA in particular is just wrong. Sorry, it's not going to work that way. Um, and, and you actually asked the right question. The reason it won't work is that you'd have to charge too much in order for the publishers to feel that they were whole. So I'll ask you a question. Sure. Is there a service for movies where we can watch any first run movie we want for an, for an unlimited subscription? And you're going to say no, but, but yes, there is actually. And do you know how much it costs? $7,500 or seven. Yeah. $7,500 a year. Um, it's a direct TV package. And so whatever that is, you know, $600 a month and, and you get unlimited consumption of anything on direct TV, including pay-per-view movies, oh my but, God. but the pay-per-view window isn't the theatrical window. It's three and a half or four months later. Right. So you, you know, and, and actually I've been a direct TV customer since 95 for real. And they actually offered this to me once because my bill is up to, you know, during football season, 300 bucks a month. Yeah. So they're like, Hey, if you just double it to 650, you know, you can get everything. <laughs> and I'm like, man, I, I'm having, you know, I, I can afford it, but I'm having trouble spending, you know, adjusting 300 bucks for my regular package. So, so the point is my regular package is more like, you know, 250, including football and then all the extra receivers. Uh, the point is, they, they have to charge so much because each individual constituent who provides content is afraid they'll get screwed. And DirecTV has to end up paying them full price, you know, $5.99 every time I watch Mission Impossible or whatever. And so DirecTV has to price it where they can take the risk. I might watch 30 movies a month. Anyway, nobody could ever figure that out. So if you look at Netflix, and I hope you know I cover them as well, um, they don't have current content. Now, you'll have people say, yeah, Netflix originals. Yeah, kind of. I mean, Netflix does purchase exclusive window rights to a lot of shows. There's about 250 Netflix originals. But most of those things are shows that are owned by other people that couldn't get put on regular TV. So all the Marvel Defender series. And Disney owns that. And if Disney thought it made sense on commercial broadcast TV, they would have produced it for commercial broadcast. They didn't think it would have a big enough audience. So they decided to sell it to Netflix. And the results are mixed. You know, Daredevil is still on. I guess three, season three is coming. Jessica Jones is still on. Luke Cage canceled. Uh, Iron Fist canceled. And I'm not sure they have a show called The Defenders. I don't know if that's still going or not. That's what you get that's new. And obviously, there are shows like Ozark. I mean, you know, there are shows, but not that many. And then on movies, it's Disney, which are all gone by year end, by year end uh, 18. And beyond the Disney new movies and originals, they have nothing for eight years. They do not get movies for eight years. So there's Windows, and there's going to be no new content on Netflix. So when you think games, think Windows. Think, yes, you know, you said it, you'll get a service for old Xbox One and PS4 games. Maybe that'll work, you know, but nothing new. 
And so, you know, EA thinks they're going to do it themselves because everybody wants to play FIFA and Battlefield, you know, but, but that's about all they got. You know, they have one, one non-sports game a year that people want to buy. It'll be, it'll be Battlefield this year, Anthem next year, maybe Titanfall, but that's not enough to justify even 10 bucks a month. I mean, if you, if you spend 120, you know, or hundred on EA, you better be consuming two games. So no, the pay-per-view model is the way to go which is Amazon will have a game and it'll be three or six months after the game launches and they'll sell it to you for 40 bucks. And I think that works. And then when you get enough people doing that, like iTunes did, when you get, you know, half a billion people kind of spending six or 10 or 20 bucks a month, I'm sorry, a year, um, then you can start offering a subscription and hope that 5 million will sign up for 10 bucks a month and subscribe and then grow it from there. So, so no, no Netflix of games anytime soon. Yes, and iTunes of games very soon, like next year. And it doesn't really matter to to the consumer or the the distributor if you stream it or you download the game. If it's multiplayer, you better download it because if you stream it, the the latency is going to screw up, and there's no way that you're going to enjoy the experience. And if it's a single player game, who cares? You can totally stream it. Well, you mentioned Amazon having it for maybe $40 a few months later. You have that discount. You see that really quickly. A lot of AAA games that aren't Call of Duty or Battlefield will pretty rapidly drop in price. But do you see this idea of iTunes for games before Netflix for games changing the price of games when they come out? Do you think 60 is a solid number that won't move? Or do you think that... Because right now everyone's supplementing it with microtransactions, right? You like, okay, sixty is not really enough for the budget of these games, so we need to get the more money through different avenues. Do you think that might change overall? Where we're seeing eighty dollars games, or maybe forty dollars games, or do you think sixty is where it's going to stay? I think sixty is where it stays, and I think that the um, the model I think that would make sense to change is how microtransactions are implemented. And I, I spoke to EA about this three or four years ago and they laughed at me, you know, in, the, in a group meeting. I mean, about what an idiot I am, but no, I actually asked them, you know, why would you not with every copy of FIFA, just give every person who buys the game $60 in gold to spend in ultimate team. And they were just like, ha 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 ha. You know, why would we do that? And I'm like, because every single person who buys FIFA would play ultimate team and try it and yeah. spend $63. dollars. And then Andrew Wilson actually said, well, but the, we have people spending 300 bucks in that game. And they'd spend 240. And I go, how many free, free to play games do you play? You know, and he, he goes, well, FIFA Ultimate Team. I said, okay, I play like 30 of them. And, you know, I, the, several I spend 300 bucks a year. And I'm like, I'd spend 360. You're, you're just wrong. Like, try it. You'll learn. And, and they scoffed at me with no knowledge. So, you know, literally I had this talk with Mike Morheim, who's no longer going to be head of Blizzard, um, about Overwatch. And, you know, literally probably six, eight months ago, so early 18. And I asked him, you know, why don't you guys make Overwatch free to play? Because, and only for the Overwatch League, you know, why wouldn't you want to have hundreds of millions of people who play Overwatch watch the league? And then you'd have more ad revenue and the owners would be happy and the athletes would be happy because they have giant audiences and fan bases, whatever. And he's like, well, yeah, you know, we'd love to do that, but that would betray the 30 million people who bought Overwatch. And I'm like, give them $60 of gold in the game. You know, like anybody, you you can tell, obviously, if you make a free to play game 
if that particular user has downloaded it free or he's using a you know file that he paid for give him a full credit for everything he he's ever spent on the game and he's going to be happy i mean it's just so dumb so i think that the publishers are myopic in how they think about you know their their audience and how to monetize the audience i do think the sale model is flawed and i think the microtransaction model has flaws but generally is a better model and the trick is how do you wean yourself as a publisher from selling 25 million copies of call of duty at 60 bucks a year or 20 million copies of fifa at 60 bucks a year into a purely free to play model and the answer is give people $60 a goal. There are people who want to play the single player campaign in Call of Duty. This year's obviously doesn't have one. There are people who want to just play FIFA Ultimate Team, just, you know, NPC, you know, us against the, the console. And that's a good experience and, you know, and do the whole journey and build your characters and have fun. I mean, that's how Fallout has always worked, single player games. So I haven't yet. Uh, downloaded Fallout 76, but I'm hearing people complaining about it. And I think the complaints are it's multiplayer only. So, you know, I, I personally think the harder core gamers really like both. You know, they like to play the standard, you know, single player campaign mode and they like to play multiplayer. And so you can justify that. You can charge 60 bucks for campaign mode, but make all the multiplayer aspects free, you know, and bring people in and get them to spend money as they go. And the solution is, you know, charge up. So I think you're going to see a migration. And so the, the, the leader in this is probably going to be Activision and probably with Call of Duty Blackout. So my prediction is you're going to see Blackout made free to play yep. sometime in 2019, likely two months before the launch of Modern Warfare 5 or whatever the next one is. And, and you will see that audience expand because it'll be free to 100 million people. And they'll suddenly be generating you know, 20 million a month or 30 million a month more because those 100 million people will dress up their weapons and characters and whatever. And the next year, rinse and repeat with the next Battle Royale mode. Do it again, do it again, do it again. And in 10 years, they're probably going to make more money from running a live ops Battle Royale as free to play than they are from selling the game. So I think we're going to see a very slow migration away from selling games and toward uh, free-to-play microtransaction supported. And, you know, the, the things that will remain for sale are going to be the single-player-only games. So Red Dead, for sure, you'll always buy that because that's a 100-hour, 200-hour experience. Uh, two things based off that. First, I love the idea of giving people credit for free-to-play games, especially if they bought them previously. And this is it's proven out in other areas, right? Where I know there's um, there's different betting sites or betting apps where essentially if you sign up, we're going to give you $50 to play with or we'll match your first deposit. And you think of that as, well, maybe I wouldn't use this app otherwise. And as soon as you get that credit, you're more apt to actually experiment with that, to start betting on stuff and realize, oh, maybe I like it. It's a little bit insidious, but it works in terms of getting people into that ecosystem. And I think Overwatch doing something like that or just Fortnite being like, hey, if you download Fortnite, you get this amount of credit just to suit up your person. And then you might want to keep suiting up that person and spending. So it makes sense. And I do think publishers need to consider that. And additionally, I, I was actually in an argument with someone about this idea that I think next year, no doubt that the, the Battle Royale mode in Black Ops is going to be a free to play thing. They're going to separate it out and they're going to just put it on the store and say, here you go. 
this is you can just now play this without the full game but you look at something like battlefield which had its battle royale mode delayed out of the main release or at least pushed to early 2019 could battlefield and ea get a leg up on call of duty by doing that before they do by just saying hey here's this new update for battlefield but also it's up on the store for free would that make sense for them or is that too big of a gamble oh i think it since they're launching it late um nobody's buying battlefield 5 solely to play battle royale so agreed i mean if it launches i think all they've said is it was delayed to 2019 i don't think they've dated it yet yeah um but but yeah i think that would be smart as far as a leg up i mean there's a reason that call of duty does you know better than um than battlefield and you know the reason is that call of duty is uh annual so the only way that you're going to get um Black, I'm sorry, Battlefield to catch up to Call of Duty is to make Battlefield annual. Um, I think part of the strategy of spending $450 million to bring Respawn in is that you've got the godfather of Medal of Honor and the godfather of Call of Duty at Respawn, you know, Vincent Pella. Yeah. And, you know, I think that people should pay attention that the Sledgehammer founders, uh, Glenn Schofield and Mike Condry, kind of are were pushed aside at at activision at uh, their their studio they aren't officially free agents they're still on the payroll there but they work up in i think hayward they're up in the bay area if i were ea i would poach those guys overnight and then you've got dice in stockholm and sledgehammer or whatever they're going to call themselves you know the, the old visceral games founders and probably visceral and uh and respawn and you can make annual call of duty i'm sorry annual battlefield installments and compete head-to-head with call of duty now i truly believe that's ea strategy and i really think they're going to do this but let's be real they haven't you know hired the sledgehammer guys yet so best case you know they hire them sometime in 2019 and they get those guys get a game out for 2022 you know so best case vince delivers his first installment in 2021 you know, so we got a, at least another three years before you get annual battlefield. But that's the way to fix it. And to answer your question, sure, if they make um, their battle royale mode free, that will get a lot of people interested in battlefield. It just doesn't help you if there isn't a battlefield game coming in holiday 2019, and there's not. Last time we talked, I think PUBG had just come out and started to pick up Steam, but Fortnite was not a thing yet, and. In all the years you've covered the business side of games, have you ever seen anything quite like what Fortnite is doing? Because I remember at the time I was talking to someone and saying like, this could be bigger than Minecraft to a certain extent, to a certain number of people. And it seemed a little crazy at the time, but now just with the the nature of that, where in sports, in schools, in entertainment, you just, everyone knows what Fortnite is. So do you think it's comparable to Minecraft or Modern Warfare? Or is that a level that we've never really seen? Oh, I think uh, Fortnite is significantly bigger as a brand than Minecraft. So if, if you don't have, you know, children under 10, and if you never have, and you weren't, you aren't a child under 10, you probably don't even know what Minecraft is. Yeah. I mean, if you put up a you know pixelated character from Minecraft on a screen and ask people to describe what it is, you know, I'd say probably less than fifty percent recognition, probably twenty of the population at large. If you put up 
somebody flossing, you know, a, a, a dance with, I, I can't even name all the dances. There are so many of them, but a Fortnite dance, I'd say you'd have twice as much recognition. It's not a hundred percent yet, you know? And then if you said Minecraft and Fortnite, I really think again, it would be two X the number of people. So Fortnite has been a phenomenon. Um, I have trouble actually believing the numbers for Fortnite. And I'm not saying they're lying. I'm saying they're so mind boggling that they're hard to believe because they're so crazy big. Um, but the company apparently said they only have 85 million monthly active users. That number sounds crazy low to me. Like I would have thought it was close to 200 million, just again, because of how it's in the lexicon. And again, I'm not sure, you know, they didn't say it to me. It wasn't really official. It was when they were raising capital. They, I, I heard this from an investor who saw their slide presentation. Um, but then they also said that they're generating 250 million in profit per month which means they're doing, you know, way over 300 million per month in revenue. And again, mind boggling, because if 85 million people are, you know, pushing out $350 million of revenue, you know, that's $4 per person per month. That means that the average MAU is spending 50 bucks. And again, you know, you know how these games, these free to play games work. Everybody doesn't spend money. It's a a percentage which tends to be between two and ten you can't get to 50 bucks per average user if only two percent are spending money that would be you know five five thousand bucks a year or whatever it's got to be literally you know 25 million people um, that are spending literally like you know 10 bucks a month or, or 15 bucks a month to get you to those numbers and so Fortnite is a phenomenon, not just because it's so popular and they've branded it so well and everybody plays it. It's a phenomenon because they changed the way that, that these games monetize and they had the audacity to charge more. And what they did to justify charging more for skins, because Counter-Strike Ghost skins, I mean, I'm sure there are $10 skins, but they have them on sale all the time for a dollar, you know, and, yeah. and I think the average is probably five. And Fortnite was like, no, 20, you know, 15. And, and the way they got it was the skin is gone at the end of the week. If you don't buy it, it's never coming back. And so, you know, and, and, and I give them credit. Um, they have really good artists who sit around thinking up outlandish, you know, costumes and, and get ups and they sell them. So, and, and they even get press for like jiggly boobs. You know, I mean, I, again, I, 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 I stopped playing that game after about 30 minutes, but you know, how, the press thinks that's important to write up. They had to get the boob jiggle out of the way, you know, so it's just really kind of refreshing to see the good guys win. Like I like the Epic guys. They're nice people. They're, they're definitely gamer focused. And it's shocking to me that nobody's complaining about how much they're spending in Fortnite because they feel they're getting value for it. So God bless them. I hope it lasts forever. Um, but you know, I don't, I think it's good for the industry. I think it's just like mobile games and iPad games are introducing the entire generation of, you know, five-year-olds to games and they're going to work their way up and want a console or PC. Um, Fortnite is doing the same thing. And so I, you know, I think Fortnite is, introducing people to shooter mechanics and just getting people interested in that type of game. Uh, PUBG wasn't that. PUBG was aimed at people who already really understood the shooter mechanic and uh, its initial audience was shooter 
fanatics. Um, Fortnite, not. Fortnite's bringing in, you know, disproportionately large numbers of women and disproportionately large numbers of teens who otherwise weren't playing console games. So I think it's really great. The reach and the different types of people is insane. When I could have my just out of college little brother be extremely into it, or I worked with an animator at my last studio who's in his 40s playing Fortnite, or you think of like Bill Simmons from The Ringer is streaming Fortnite on Twitch, and it's just, it's grabbed so many different types of people that, yeah, PUBG had a very specific audience. It hit it, but then it peaked with what it could do. And I just don't know what the peak is of Fortnite. And you said you wish it could last forever. And I agree that it's extremely healthy for games as a whole, but can this sustain and even grow? Cause you talk about call of duty getting into this. You talk about battlefield getting into this. There will be other battle Royale games. Is there, do you think there will be a next Fortnite that overtakes Fortnite or is this now so solid, so established that this will be the battle Royale game moving forward? I think it's like Starbucks coffee. Right. So Starbucks kind of came up with the idea of a, a global chain of coffee stores. And the primary reason you go there is for coffee. I mean, obviously people like their muffins and their breakfast sandwiches. And before Starbucks, there was no such thing. I mean, we could argue about Dunkin' Donuts or something, but it was, that was a donut shop with coffee. And when Starbucks came up, it, it brought in Pete's and Diedrich's and, you know, I forgot, there's about 10 of them, but all these different coffee chains. And so what do we have? We have Starbucks with, I don't know, 50% market share and 10 other guys, you know, with 5% each, but we have a lot more coffee shops than we used to. So Fortnite is that. So they, yes, I think they'll continue to capture 50% share, but what Call of Duty is trying to do is win back the, the prior Call of Duty customer who morphed over into a Fortnite customer. And they want them back and they want that person to continue to play call of duty and they'll play blackout. And so battlefields went over the battlefield customer. And at the end of the day, more people are buying coffee because of Starbucks, because we just now ex expect, you know, I, I was in Manhattan this past week and, uh, you know, I was looking on my Starbucks app for where I could go to get a coffee on the way. And I passed, you know, a dozen other coffee stores. And if I didn't have the app and I didn't have credit on my app, I probably would have gone to one of the others. But the fact is I used to go to New York 30 years ago and there were no coffee stores. So, you know, you just, it's a, they've changed the way we consume. I didn't used to have gourmet coffee. I would have coffee in the hotel before we go out to meetings and it's just different now. So Fortnite is that we didn't used to play battle Royale. Now we do. Um, they took the PUBG idea to a different level, which is far more approachable, far more friendly, far more or far less violent. And, you know, I think that you'll end up getting uh, the genre segmented into super hardcore realistic all the way down to probably more cartoony than Fortnite. You know, imagine Mario doing Battle Royale, you know, us against oh, the, the toadstools or whatever. You know, or is that what they call them? You know, the, the, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, do that and they could do it. I don't think Nintendo will figure this out for another 10 years, but you know, <laughs> that, but that would be the more approachable you know, battle royale. And yeah, I, I, you know, I think Pokemon Go could be battle royale. You know, they could do whatever they want if they, if they really want to do it. Um, but yeah, I think it's the beginning of a trend. It's making games more approachable to the masses. The real innovation in Fortnite 
uh, aside from the monetization, was cross-platform play, which you know I, I know was technologically feasible prior, but nobody really pulled it off. Like I don't remember ever seeing mobile PC and two consoles where people could be on any of those four platforms and playing against one another. And even though obviously the screen size of mobile isn't really fair for that player, it's just great that you can invite your mom in to hide behind a bush for a while and just pop out and hit somebody over the head. So Yeah, because it is still a very competitive game, but at that point you just want as much integration with everyone as possible. Like that's just fun. That's just what you want to do because you don't want to have to be like, oh, well, I can't play with you unless I get X console or Y console. And we've talked a lot about trends about new consoles likely in 2020 about streaming about battle royale if you look at the major publishers whether that be ea activision ubisoft whoever you want to name who do you think is best positioned for this next wave of consoles in terms of success i think you pointed to activision as being having kind of an interesting look at what to do next but who is setting themselves up right now for what the ps5 and the xbox 2 or whatever is well i mean the each of the publishers has different strengths and um and some weaknesses and the reason i think i like activision the best of the the batch is that they own pretty much all their ip and they're farther along in mobile than the others um they're farther along in free to play than the others um so you know mobile uh obviously king gives them a big leg up um, free to play, you know, Hearthstone and uh, Heroes of the Storm and soon to come Diablo Immortals give them a pretty big leg up. And uh, I think that they have the most enlightened attitude about, you know, the whole value chain and the whole addressable market and how to get people hooked. And in fairness, they have among the best creative teams at Blizzard. Um, we can, you know, we can debate whether people think the Activision side is creative, but, you know, they brought us Call of Duty and Skylanders and externally De Destiny. So they've done pretty well on the Activision side and even Guitar Hero, they bought it, but um, Tony Hawk, you know, so they've, they've really, they're pretty good, but the Blizzard side is just amazing. Um, I'm sad about Morheim's departure because I think he's one of the best guys ever. Um, and I think in the long run that hurts Blizzard because it's good to have a brilliant guy like that running it. But I think in the near term, it means it doesn't take 12 years between installments of StarCraft and Diablo, and they'll come out more frequently. So, you know, the next five years, I think gamers are going to be really happy because they're going to get StarCraft 3 and Diablo 4, and they might not have gotten them you know, as soon as they're going to get them. Um, EA has its biggest strength is its licenses, and so sports is just a great strength i mean there's just no way they're going to screw up fifa and and there is a way they could screw up star wars but but they've done okay not great but okay um i think their creative was as good as it gets but they've chased off a lot of people you know for for whatever reason these people left you know lucy bradshaw who was running uh, maxis and she's a 20 some odd year employee left in 15 you know, they attracted Amy Hennig and Jade Raymond, and they're both gone. Um, they had Aaron Flynn and Matt Bromberg running the Bioware studios, and they left, you know, replaced by Casey Hudson, who's a stud. Um, you know, Patrick Bach was running Dice Stockholm. He's at UB now. So I think that's kind of a disruptive uh, thing to lose that many talented creative people. 
but they hired Vince and Vince brought in Stig Asmussen. So, you know, not worried at all about um, Respawn you know, filling the void. I just would like to see the creative teams getting bigger, not, not smaller. Um, UB is really good. And I can't even name people at UB because they kind of take things anonymously. They own all their IP and their IP is pretty good. So all the Tom Clancy stuff they bought, they own that the rights to that. Um, they, they're late in figuring out free to play and rainbow six seems to be more of an accident than a plan. Um, but no, but they've got, they're getting it, you know, they're figuring it out a year late or two yeah. years late, but they're, they're getting it right. The division, same thing, you know, they had multiplayer had like three months worth of content and then it petered out. They figured it out later. So I, I I'm really keenly interested to see how they roll out the division two. Cause I think they'll get it right from the beginning. And I think the next rainbow six will be right from the beginning. So I love those guys. I think those guys have amazing IP consistent, you know, good quality games. Um, so they're well positioned and take two, I think has the best portfolio of everybody and the best development of anybody, except that they're just not in a rush. So, you know, what I was saying about Morheim and 12 year cycles for Diablo and Starcraft. Well, do you remember Midnight Club? Because that was a freaking great, awesome oh. franchise. Came out in 09, and here we are in 2018, and no hint it's ever coming again, you know, other than the Rockstar blog, we're hard at work on Midnight Club. Um, you know, and and before that, Manhunt and Bully, which are, I thought, super fun. But where are the sequels? The, the game uh, Agent was announced in 2009. Oh remember God. that? Yes. Yeah, you remember that? Holy shit. Yeah. So, and I don't know if it's even in development anymore because if Take Two told you, they'd have to kill you. So we just don't know what they're working on. Um, but and then we know about La Noir. You know, they just bought back a remastered, and we know about Max Payne. And so those are in development. So you know, obviously, the topic of the of the month is Red Dead, which is phenomenal. You know, top five all time game uh, review score, and obviously GTA. So I just named like eight properties that, you know, six of them haven't come out since Max Payne in 2012. And so what the fuck? I mean, yeah. are they ever coming out? Well, if they could get their act together and bring out games once a year, just one of those every year, Take-Two is the best company on the planet. And I would, I would love them more than any. So the answer really is who's the best positioned to thrive in the next gen, those guys, because they're lined up now. I do not think the rockstar people are flakes. I think they're actually conscientious. They work diligently. They're just, they're just so focused on making sure the experience is the best possible for the consumer that it takes them a long time. Fortunately, all those games, Bully Manhunt, LA Noir, Midnight Club, Max Payne have been in development between six and nine years, six and 10 years. So I think you're going to get a rash of games coming out from them perfectly timed with next generation console launches. And I think take two is going to absolutely destroy everybody, but I'm guessing because God forbid they would tell us, um, as we morph into free to play as a model, what game is better than grand theft auto online? Let's make that free to play. Yeah. If they just said next year, GTA Online is free to play on console and PC, period. You can't play the, you know, the core single player campaign. You can only play GTA Online. And oh, by the way, we have a dozen expansions already in place, you know, so 
you can start with Doomsday Heist if you want. Oh my God. And all the guys playing it now who have, you know, 10 billion credits and have built themselves up and have everything are going to have a whole new horde of newbies to, to kick ass. So I think that would instantly be 500 million a year. I mean, it would just be like, that would be, you know, not as big as Fortnite, but gigantic. So I love take two. I think they have amazing assets. I respect their management that they're not trying to screw any game up and they want to make great, great experiences. But, you know, using the movie analogy, you leave James Cameron alone when he's working on Avatar 2 because Avatar 1 did $2 billion of box office. But, you know, would you actually leave him alone if he was making, a, you know, a biography of Nixon? No, I mean, come on. Like, you know, like you've got to get some of this other stuff out more frequently. And again, fortunately, they've had eight years or more to work on most of these titles. So, you know, they're coming and I think they're coming soon. So that was my favorite. Um, and I think I talked about the four. So and Nintendo, uh, someday they're going to figure out, you know, things like free to play and battle royale you know, sometime in the next decade. <laughs> yeah, I think 10 years is the right mark there. It's always like a yeah. 10 year gap with them and i the the grand theft auto online thing is still shocking to me how much that makes like if you look at the charts every single month on psn it's up there's grand theft auto 5 is up there just for gta online and it's the free to play that just seems like a layup to me like that just seems me too make that a free to play and then suddenly boom it's the biggest again not fortnite but it's one of the biggest things in the world and i do think looking at take two and ubisoft as sort of these maybe not the leaders in it but some of the smarter positioned people is correct because i do think ubisoft kind of fell into this idea of oh wait we can make siege a thing for three years we can make the division sustainable for years and years to come even like you look at something like a ghost recon or the crew they've they've fallen into this idea of we release a game and it's good at the time it's maybe in like the 80 metacritic range and we support the hell out of it so by the time it's a year in, the user base is just either staying steady or growing in some way. And I think that is what we're going to want to see more and more on this next generation of consoles. And on that same track, if we were to look ahead, if we were saying 2020 is the year, Sony and Microsoft are launching these new consoles, Nintendo's a different thing. I, I think we've seen, obviously, the PS4 is, is, is the dominant force right now in terms of sales and in terms of mindshare, but Microsoft is buying all these studios. You could tell that it's really positioning itself for what's coming next. So in terms of sales momentum, it's kind of obviously PS4, but if you were to place a bet on who is going to be make the bigger impact and maybe quote unquote win the next console generation between Microsoft and Sony, who would you pick? Amazon. Oh, there it is. So yeah, I mean, I think that Microsoft is in a position to leverage its cloud infrastructure and actually stream. Um, they understand the concept of downloading to a device. And so they'll have a skinny console. And they also understand the concept of the super hardcore guy who wants the best of the best. And so they'll have a full, a full fledged, you know, full featured console. Um, so they're going to do well. Um, Sony, you know, I, I really don't want to dismiss them. They bought Gaikai and they bought OnLive and PS Now is actually working pretty well. So they've really got a robust streaming service that's up now and has, I'm sure, a million or two million subscribers. I'm sure they do. They don't talk about it, but, you know, it's there and people use it. So, you know, everybody's, ooh, ah, uh, Google. But Sony's been doing it for a while. 
So I don't think they're out. I'm just not clear what they want to be when they grow up. You know, do they want to yeah. stick to the console model or do they want to do both? And Amazon, I think, is determined to be the iTunes of this business. And, you know, Amazon looked at what Apple did to music and Apple invented iTunes and they dominate, you know, that they just crush it. And even though overall music sales have gone down, Apple disproportionately captures the value from music sales. And I think Amazon would like to be that for games. And they have the balance sheet, you know, the cash to pull it off. So they're going to win. Um, between Microsoft and Sony, I'd say they'll probably end up even next cycle because Microsoft is trying to give consumers a whole lot of choice. And Sony may, you know, I, again, I won't discount Sony yet because I don't know what they're doing. But there was a reason they bought Kai Kai. And remember, Andy House was running PlayStation when they did those things, and he's not anymore. So I don't really know what John Codera is thinking. John Codera just pulled them out of E3. The hell is he thinking there? You know, how much could it possibly cost? 10, 20 million bucks? The publicity is worth 10 or 20 million bucks. So I don't really understand pulling out of E3. Um, and so I, who knows where they're going? But uh, my interaction with Sony, they're very thoughtful, very smart people, and they're not going to let anybody eat their lunch. And Microsoft is very aggressive, determined. Uh, they want to win, and they're going to try to eat Sony's lunch. So I think the answer is they pull even, which is a huge win for Microsoft. Yeah. And it's also like a huge win just in terms of it's it's fun having that competition. It's healthy having that competition where, like you said, if one person doesn't want their lunch eaten and one per person is determined to eat that lunch, that means we're going to see more aggressive moves. We're going to see bigger swings. And do you th is there anything that Sony's skipping out on E3? Is that signaling anything for you? Is it more about Sony, more about E3 as a whole? Do you think other publishers and or console makers will pull out of E3 soon? Um, it, it signals that they don't have much to show. So, you know, it's pretty clear they don't have a new console to announce. And I, you know, again, I'm just reading between the lines because I have no information. But, you know, they've announced their lineup of games. And except for Death Stranding, we pretty much think everything is coming in 19. So there's, I think it's just a signal, you know, here in November that by June, we're not going to announce any new titles that we haven't already announced. So, there's no reason to have a big presence there. Um, why would they not have more new titles coming in 2019 and 20? Answer, we're holding them all for our next-gen console in 2020. So it all does kind of make sense, but I'm you know, just a, applying a conspiracy theory to the whole thing, that there is a console coming. Maybe that's wrong, uh, but that's what I think is going on. I don't think they're skipping E3. I would imagine there'll be a couple of hundred Sony people there, just no booth. And they'll be meeting with people and talking to retailers and going to my party. So we'll find out. <laughs> and we, we've always said that Nintendo is in a, a kind of a class of its own. It, it does its own thing. It marches to the beat of its own drum. But I mean, last year was huge for the Switch. You, you think about you know, Mario, Zelda, they had some of the best games of all time in one year. And it's hard to maintain that momentum because you kind of blow your load with these major titles. But this year, have you been impressed with what Nintendo is doing? Do you think they're starting to be more forward-thinking, or are they still in their own Nintendo bubble? Uh, the latter. I mean, the the, the the one thing we need that they deserve props is the quantity of 
ridiculously high quality content. So, you know, you know, if somebody was saying to me, aren't you disappointed in Pokemon? Let's go Eevee and Pikachu only getting an 82. I'm like, yeah, I guess. But that's how you think of Nintendo, like an 82 sucks. That's phenomenal. Um, Smash Brothers is as popular as any of those titles. You know, as, as, I mean, Zelda sells more, but but the hardcore Smash Brothers fans, that's what they want. So, you know, once I get Smash out, it's like the, the only thing left is Mario Kart. And they've, you know, they've kind of hit for the cycle. Uh, and that's pretty good, it, you know, in the first year and a half after launch. So I'm, I'm really impressed with the pace at which they've, you know, they've got their AAA titles out and the quality of those titles. Um, and, you know, I think they are marching to the beat of a different drummer. I think their, you know, subscription $30 a year plan is screwy. Um, yep. but you have to, you have to be online every week or that, you know, or they, or you lose all your data, just dumb things that not, aren't well thought out. Um, I haven't heard any horror stories yet, but you're going to hear horror stories. Um, I don't think they understand mobile. I don't think they understand the concept of free to play. And I don't think they understand multiplayer. So they have some games that work. Um, but in fairness to them, you know, they're like a movie studio. You know, they make these self-contained, amazing experiences. And, you know, free to play is like, asking somebody to make a TV show, like a daily TV show. It's just a different skill set, you know, so you wouldn't ask, you know, James Cameron to make a, a 10 season television series. I'm not sure he would know how to do it. And you wouldn't ask, you know, Simon Cowell, who created X Factor and, and American Idol to make a feature length film, just not what he knows how to do. So Nintendo, you know, probably hasn't been good at this because they haven't focused on the right type of talent. It's just a different experience to go from, you know, a single player campaign type game that takes 10 hours to finish into a persistent world multiplayer experience that you can play 10 hours a week for a year. Uh, so, uh, you know, let's diss them for not getting there, but I kind of understand why they don't have that skill set. And I also understand why they don't care to have that skill set. You know, I think we as uh, consumers expect everybody to do everything perfectly. And it's just not fair. Um, they're a traditional, you know, giant single player campaign, you know, game maker. And we, the, the world has expanded beyond that to multiplayer and now free to play. And they're just not very good at the multiplayer free to play businesses. I think we do have that assumption that all these different publishers or developers or console manufacturers can do a little bit of everything. And maybe we've been spoiled by, you look at Guerrilla Games that makes Killzone and that makes Horizon, and you're like, how is that the same studio? Like, these are such wildly different things. So you assume someone like Nintendo can do multiplayer, single player, understand online, understand subscriptions, but sometimes the reason they are the way they are is because their brains don't work like that. Their business model doesn't work like that. And that is and, okay. And, you know, that's a good good example because look at Bungie yeah. who made Halo and then made Destiny. And Destiny 1 was really good and kept people engaged for a couple of years. And Destiny 2, people were like, more of the same. I'm, I'm bored. It's hard to keep reinventing yourself and and it's just a skill set. The bunch of guys didn't fail. They just didn't, you know, hit expectations. And so yeah. it, yes, the, the Guerrilla Games example is a great one. It's hard. You know, it's really hard. 
especially since every if you're going around pitching and you're a horror game developer or you're a single player developer and everyone wants to hear where's the Fortnite killer you're you might try to model your pitch after that to these publishers but if it's not you it's not you and it shows if you, if you get greenlit you're going to be developing that game just being like i have no idea what i'm doing like it's not the sort of mindset that i've ever been in so it's hopefully you know not everyone is looking for the same thing and you can let people spread their wings a bit and that's why i'm i guess i'm more okay with nintendo doing dumb shit every once in a while because it leads to things like breath of the wild or the new mario uh last thing from you and again i always appreciate the time what game in 2019 are you most looking forward to maybe not in terms of what's the metacritic going to be what are the sales going to be but just you personally if you could have one 2019 game right now in your hands what would it be you know, I, I, I obviously I'm I'm kind of guessing here, so a speculative answer, but I'm excited for Anthem. Yeah, and I played Destiny for maybe 15 hours, and I just found it Destiny one, and I just found it super repetitive, and you had to grind it out, and I didn't enjoy the raids, and it just I just didn't like it. I mean, it's not my kind of thing. Anthem looks like they fixed all that, but I'm basing it on screenshots and you know brief trailers. But that, I think I really am attracted to that style of gameplay. I just don't think Destiny did it very well. So I think that one's going to really surprise people, and I think I'm going to play that. I'm actually probably going to be playing Fallout 76 for the next year and a half. So <laughs> I may not have any time to get to that. Um, and I haven't started Red Dead yet. You know, So I could, I could throw Red Dead Online in there as well. Um, Red Dead 1, I probably spent 100 hours on. You know, I remember the, the three week journey to get to Mexico, you know, so I'm, and people are telling me now it's like, you know, you spend two hours trying to hunt for two beaver pelts because you need them to accomplish some mission. And, and you know, guys who played that are like, yeah, and it, and it seemed like 10 minutes. And I was they go, I kept finding myself staring at the sunset. I like shit like that. Like, that's my I, I think single player long campaigns are super fun. But Anthem on the multiplayer side, I think is the one I'm most excited about. And I might change my mind when the division two comes out because I like the division one, you know, but again, I'm not a big multiplayer guy um, just because I suck so bad. Um, but, but no, I understand that they're actually constructing the game. So bad players like me can find something to do. That was true of overwatch. You know, I can, I hated it, but I could be Reinhardt, you know, and, and I'm, and I, it cracks me up to see the overwatch league, and the most valuable players are all the tanks because that's the most strategic, but you don't have to move fast. So, I, you know, if you don't have to move fast and you can think about what you're doing, that's my kind of game. That's why I love Fallout. Yeah, that's Overwatch is maybe the best at that. And yeah, with I've been unemployed for a month and a Red Dead 2 still is too just imposing for me to even start. Like I'm two hours in, I'm like, oh, this is a, I will need to be unemployed again to actually get through this, but it, it's high on my list. Uh, yeah. People can find you on Twitter at Michael Pactor. But other than that, what different videos or pieces of content you're working on right now? Pactor Factor, everything like that. Where can people find your work? Oh, well, I mean, my my work is uh, for investors. So obviously, if you have an account at a Wedbush branch, you can read any of my stuff. Um, but it will bore you to tears unless you're really into investing. <laughs> so yeah, I write 365 notes a year, and they average about five pages of thought. So literally I write five pages a day of stuff I'm thinking about, but it's, oh my God. you know, I cover internet stocks. And so the game guys are just, I, I cover 25 stocks. Games are just five of them. 
Um, so I cover Netflix and Zynga and Pandora and uh, Snapchat and Twitter, uh, Amazon, Google, Fang, you know, Facebook. So if you you know if you care about that stuff, that's where you find it. Um, as far as all this stuff I'm doing with you and Packer Factor is just for fun. I'm just goofing. Well, I'm happy you have fun and goof with this kind of stuff. This is one of my favorite podcasts to do. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for doing this. It was great seeing you again after so long at your party at E3. It's always a blast. And again, I appreciate you taking time out of your writing five pages of notes every single day to do something like this, to give insight. And uh, I would love this to be a yearly tradition. Would love to come have you come back once all this other crazy shit happens after Sony skips out on E3, after some of this iTunes, Amazon stuff comes out. So we can go over what's going on then. Hey, more sushi for you and me at, at my party. So here we go. I, that sushi was so great. I, I'm very excited. Again, now that I live in LA, it's way easier to go to that party every single year. Awesome. So thanks so much, everyone, for listening. Hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.